anytime that you start anything, and I mean, this is true if you're in the disaster relief team, uh, this is true if you, if you came to the first hermeneutics class, what we did at the beginning of Deuteronomy, how long it's taken us through the foundational framework stuff, all that stuff. Anytime that you are starting something in order to lay the groundwork for it to begin with, it just takes a lot of time. Uh, so what we did was, is, is Mitch recorded the sessions. You can go to gbcportage.com slash D-E-U-T. This is not a page that you can click on a link and it will take you to. You actually have to type it into your browser. And the reason why we did it like that is because, honestly, not everything that we throw out there just needs to be available for everyone. They can hear our sermons, and that's great, uh, and that's wonderful. But as far as you guys who are actually here, part of the class, maybe you missed one, you need to catch up, that kind of thing, that's fine. We are going to be using the next two to three Sundays in order to recap everything that we covered all the way from 1-1 up until 6, chapter 6, verse 1 to get us up to speed. But if you want to write that down, please do. One thing, yes, sir. Yes, yeah. It's all about my self-esteem. That's what I'm concerned about. It's because I got a bigger middle aisle to walk down. That's the reason why I want to cover more room. No, what it is is we leave, we're going to leave uh, four rows out for the hermeneutics class, and then we're going to have to set up tables and all that. It's just a little bit easier, and that way the burden to move all the chairs doesn't just fall on this class because that seems like how it happens, and I, I don't like that. That's not good. So anyway, um, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and then we have a seven-minute video. It's a little more than seven minutes, but I don't know. Has anybody ever heard of, of Read Scripture? Has anybody ever heard of that or the Bible Project? Anybody heard of, heard of those groups? Okay, it's online stuff, but what it is, um, these guys with the Bible Project, uh, Read Scripture, it's actually an app you can get on your phone if you want to go to your uh, Play Store or the iTunes Store or whatever, and you can type in Read Scripture and download it. But what I'm getting ready to show you is one of the videos that's on there. They take entire books of the Bible and they summarize them in between four and seven minutes, and they do clever little drawings that really help a lot with it. So uh, it's it's pretty neat. So uh, Mitch, if you wouldn't mind, if we could turn out the super lights up here so everybody could see, and we're going to watch this. Let me pray first, okay? What's that? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> it's very important to pray first, I promise you. So, Father, so thankful uh, to be back in Deuteronomy class and so grateful uh, just to learn more about the Old Testament, your love for people, uh, that, Father, your desire is to see uh, your kids walk obediently, to have the best possible life that they can. Uh, even when we have sin all around us, Lord. Uh, you are gracious in how you work with people. You are patient. You are long-suffering. But you're also just and fair. Uh, we thank you, God, that, that just by studying Deuteronomy, it reveals so much about yourself. Uh, so please bless our time together and pray, God, that you be worshipped in it. It's in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible and the final book of the Torah. After the exodus from Egypt, Israel was at Mount Sinai for one year, entering into a covenant with their God. And then they had the disastrous road trip through the wilderness, and the exodus generation disqualified themselves from entering into the land promised to Abraham. And so Deuteronomy begins with Moses standing in front of this new generation explaining the Torah. And it's from here that the design and purpose of the book unfolds. Deuteronomy is a series of speeches from Moses where he's calling the next generation of Israel to be faithful to the covenant with their God. At the center of the book is a collection of laws, which are the terms of the covenant between God and Israel. Some of the laws are new, but many are repeated from the laws given earlier at Mount Sinai. And that's actually where this book gets its name, from a Greek word, deuteronomion, which means a second law. 
Now, surrounding these laws are two outer sections of Moses' speech. Each of these are broken up into two parts themselves. Let's just dive in and we'll see how this whole thing works. So Moses, first of all, summarizes the story so far, and he highlights how rebellious the previous generation was in contrast with God's constant grace and provision in the wilderness. And God did bring his justice on them, yes, but he did not abandon his covenant promises. After this comes a series of very passionate sermons where Moses calls on this new generation to be more faithful than their parents were to the covenant. He reminds them of the Ten Commandments, and then the centerpiece of this section is a famous line called the Shema. Moses says, listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. This became a very important daily prayer in Judaism, and it brings all of the themes of the book together. So the word listen, or shema in Hebrew, it means much more than just to hear. Its meaning includes responding to what you hear, or in English we would say obey. And the word love in Hebrew also means much more than just an emotion or feeling. It's about a decision of wholehearted devotion to God that involves your will and your emotions, your mind and your heart. Now, for Israel, their obedience and devotion to God served a much larger purpose. Obedience to the laws is going to make Israel a unique people among the nations. Just like God said at Mount Sinai, they will become a kingdom of priests. And Moses now says, how? Israel has the chance, by following the laws, to show the whole world the wisdom and the justice of God. The other key idea in the Shema is that Israel was called to obey and be devoted to the Lord alone. Or literally, in Hebrew, it says, the Lord is one. Now, in context, the point is that the Lord is the one God Israel is to worship and obey. Israel is about to go into the land of Canaan, where people worship idol gods that represent all different aspects of creation, the sun, the weather, sex, and war. And in Moses' view, worshiping these gods degrades humans and destroys communities. But worshiping the God of Israel, who's the creator and the redeemer, that will lead to life and blessing. And so we come to the large collection of laws at the center of the book. And they're roughly arranged by topic. So the opening section is about Israel's worship of their God. They were to have one central temple where one God would be worshipped. And also, God was to be worshipped in Israel's care for its poor. So, for example, all Israelites were to set aside one-tenth of their annual income to be given to the temple. But another tenth was to be set aside every three years and given to the poor. And these are the kinds of laws that put Israel on the cutting edge of justice in comparison to their ancient neighbors. And it was all bound up with their worship of God. The next section outlines the character qualities of Israel's leaders. So the elders, the priests, the kings, these were all placed under the authority of the covenant laws, which God said that he would enforce by sending prophets to keep the leaders accountable. So in contrast to Israel's neighbors, where kings were thought of as divine and a law unto themselves, Israel's leaders were subordinate to the law and the prophets. Following this is a large section of laws about Israel's civil life, so rules about marriage and family and business, and also about social justice, about their legal system and how it was to protect widows and orphans and immigrants. And then these are concluded by more laws about worship. Now, here's some tips for reading all of these laws. Remember, first of all, these are the terms of the Sinai Covenant given specifically to ancient Israel, living in a culture that's very different from yours. And so, too, it's not going to be helpful to compare these laws with modern 
modern laws from a very different culture. Rather, these were given to set Israel apart. And so we need to compare these laws with those of Israel's neighbors, like in Assyria or Babylon. And when you do that, all of a sudden laws that seemed harsh or bizarre become much more clear. You see that God is pushing Israel to a higher level of justice than was ever known before. And so finally, try to discern what core principles of wisdom or justice underlie any particular law. And you'll discover some really profound things. So here's an extra credit assignment. Go see how Paul the Apostle does this very thing in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 9. And he quotes a law from Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 4. It's really interesting. So back to Moses. After he goes through all of the laws, he issues a final challenge that Israel should listen to and love their God. He first issues a warning and an ultimatum. If Israel listens to and obeys their God, everything's going to go great, lots of divine blessing. But if they don't listen and rebel, famine, plague, devastation, and ultimately exile from the land. And then Moses forces a decision. He says, today I set before you all life or death, <coughs> blessing or curse, goodness or evil. So choose life by loving the Lord your God and listening to him. But then Moses says this. He says, I know that after I die, you're going to rebel and turn away from God and end up in exile which is kind of a downer. But then again, he's been with these people for decades and it becomes clear that his hopes are not very high. But all is not lost, Moses says. One day, when Israel is sitting in exile, at any point, Moses says, they can turn back to their God, who will, in his words, circumcise your hearts so that you may love him with all your heart and soul and live. Now, this is a vivid metaphor that's saying something is fundamentally wrong with Israel's heart. It's stubborn and hard. And it's the same thing wrong with the heart of all of humanity. This is going all the way back to the rebellion in the garden. Humans seized autonomy from God. They wanted to define good and evil for themselves, and they ruined God's good world as a result. But one day, Moses says, God is going to do something to transform the hearts of his people so that they can truly listen to and love God from the heart and be led back to true life. And this is the promise that gets picked up by the later biblical prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the hope for a new heart. So Moses ends his speech with a poem of warning and then of blessing, and then he walks up onto a mountain and he dies. And so the Torah draws to a close. All of the major plot tensions of the biblical story are in place, but left totally unresolved. So when is the descendant of the woman going to come and defeat evil? Or how is God going to rescue the whole world and bless all nations through this family? And how can God's holiness be reconciled with people who are continually <clears throat> rebellious? And how is God going to transform the hearts of his people? You just have to keep reading to find out. But for now, that's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it's neat stuff. Now, I will say this. Uh, Mitch, are you good with putting a link to it on the... Okay. Wow. Yeah. By the way, Mitch is amazing at everything he does for the website and all that here, so... Absolutely. Absolutely. We were that close to paying you. Okay. So... Um, just kidding. Everybody would open your open your Bibles to Deuteronomy. And I will tell you this, uh, two things about this right here. This this um, picture right here, you can actually order these pictures online. Uh, and they will send you, uh, you know, 11 by 17 or something that has all this scripted out, just like you see it right here. 
uh, which they're neat to have. Uh, but there are some of them that aren't worth getting because their theology would not be as literal and consistent as we would probably like it to be. Uh, believe that they hold to some kind of idea that the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here, that kind of thing. And so we would be in completely uh, complete disagreement with that as a church. But uh, again, be discerning in what you look at. But as I went through this and looked at it, I thought, yeah, this is a really great thing to, to bring up. So some things about Deuteronomy to get us caught up in, in uh, on the way uh, to where we can pick up in a couple of weeks with chapter 6. Deuteronomy is divided up into four sections. There are three sermons and then there are closing events. Uh, I don't know if you have any of these notes from before, if you want to just look at them again. Chapters 1 through 4 is Sermon 1. Chapters 5 through 26 is Sermon 2. Chapters 27 through 30 is Sermon 3. And 31 through 34 closing events. Let me give it to you again. 1 through 4 is Sermon 1. 5 through 26 Sermon 2, and that's where the bulk of the laws come in, especially the civil laws. You'll have general stipulations, and then you'll have more specific stipulations. Chapters 27 through 30 is Sermon 3. Chapters 27 through 33 are the blessing and cursing chapters. Uh, If you will obey, here's everything that will happen. If you disobey, here's everything that will happen. And here's why that's important is because when you read through the rest of the Bible from Deuteronomy on to the end of of the Old Testament and you're looking at Israel and you're looking at uh, the spiritual climate that they're in or you're looking at whether or not they're in the land or out of the land or if they're in rebellion or if they're in idolatry or whatever it is, you can always trace all of that. It's almost like uh, an operator at those old... uh, you know, switchboards and things like that, you can trace all that back to one major plug, and that major plug is Deuteronomy 27 through 30. Everything that they are suffering as a repercussion for their disobedience is something that they had complete and explicit knowledge of because of what was said at Deuteronomy. Uh, Chapter 31 through 34 is the closing events of the book. Uh, Probably the, the time of this book, uh, as far as length was concerned, is it's events that had transpired over a month uh, as they were sitting on the other side of the Jordan River before they crossed over into the land to begin taking it. Uh, it was written probably around 1406 B.C. That's important to know. Uh, the, the exodus had happened, um, when was it, 1447? Uh, around 1447 B.C. And so this was about 40 years uh, 38, 40 years afterwards. The Hebrew word for this book is actually devarim, which means words. And the reason why you see that is because if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, it says these are the words which Moses spoke. This is how that book is known as devarim, is what it is. And, and how you spell that is D apostrophe vodum. D apostrophe V-A-R-I-M is, is how you understand it. Now, does anybody remember what the book of Deuteronomy resembles in style. We talked a lot about this. What is it? Yes, it's what's known as a suzerain vassal treaty. And here's what it is. A suzerain is a high and great king. It is a powerful king. The vassals are not peasants or peons or anything like that. They are royalty, but they are royalty of a lesser degree. And so the way that this is worked out in treaty form is that the great king says, 
if you lesser kings will devote your allegiance to me, worship me, pour back into the greater kingdom, then I, as the great and mighty king, will overshadow you, and not overshadow you in a bad way. It's, it's, it's a defend you, care for you, protect you, feed you. All, all of your cares and worries and concerns will all be based upon uh, or will all now be channeled into the provision that the great king will give if allegiance is professed unto the great king from the vassals. Does that make sense? So that's the way the treaty was signed back in that time or an agreement was come into. And it's no different for this of how God is using a human means to communicate to Israel what is going on here. Now, this is the reason why when we talk about the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant is the only covenant in all of the Bible that is conditional in nature. That is important for you to understand. The Abrahamic Covenant, the Land Covenant, which we're going to see at the end of Deuteronomy, the Davidic Covenant, which promises for a king to come, and the New Covenant from Jeremiah 31, all of those are unconditional covenants. Those are all promises or contracts that God has signed that are one-sided in the nature of their fulfillment. Or in other words, let me say it this way. God will guarantee that the promise that he made will actually come to be. Uh, and actually, some of the language is pretty severe. Does everybody remember whenever he appears to Abram uh, and he tells Abraham, you know, get the animals, you want to set them all up, you want to cut them in half and set them out in the middle, and then a flaming pot passed through, he put Abraham to sleep? Does everybody remember that? And he has the dream about, uh, or the vision about being captive in Egypt for 400 years, but he would be set free. He would pass on before that time came about, and only the pot passes through. The reason is, is because in Middle Eastern terms, in Oriental terms, whenever you were making an agreement like that, you were essentially saying, may what is done to these animals being cut in half and set on fire, may that happen to me if I do not fulfill my end of the covenant. Abraham is asleep. And so, therefore, he can't walk in between the pieces in order to shake hands on this as like it's a mutual deal. No, no, no. God puts him to sleep, and God alone passes through the covenant, and they're burned up and gone. So that's what, that's the whole idea of an, of an unconditional covenant. The, the Mosaic covenant, and we're looking at this uh, reinstitution of it, like they said with, with the, uh, the Greek translation uh, of being Deuteronomy, is the idea of second law or the second giving of the law is what it is as compared to what happened in Exodus 20 and on. Uh, so with the second giving of the law, it is a reestablishing of the conditional Mosaic covenant. Sometimes the conditional covenant of Moses is known as the if-then covenant. And the reason why it is is because a lot of times the stipulations are if you will promise obedience to me and walk in my ways and do what I ask of you, then... I will come through and bless you and keep you and protect you and fight for you and those types of things. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay, does anybody have any questions before we move on? Because that's a lot of information just thrown out there to begin with. What about it? About the vassals. Well, well, Israel is the vassals in this situation. They are the lesser kings. Notice that they're called kings, and we see a reiteration of the whole idea like he brought up in the video. Not only would they be God's demonstration of his message and his glory to the surrounding pagan nations, because they were all uh, overthrown or had been seduced 
by demons is essentially what it is. When you see Baal, when you see Ashtaroth, when you see Marduk, when you see all of that stuff, those are just carved representations of demons who have actually seduced these people to walk away from Yahweh. So whenever we talk about the responsibility of them being vassals, it's the fact that if they would devote all of their allegiance to Yahweh as their great king, then he would have that overshadowing care and protection over this, over them. But part of that obedience, that stipulation was by obeying, they were serving as those who radiated the truth of who God was to the nations. So like, for instance, you remember in this, in this sketch up here that we have, he had three laws that were sitting over to the side. One of them was the Code of Hammurabi. That's probably the one we're most familiar with uh, as far as what was used over in those times in the Middle East. Uh, the interesting thing is, is when you take God's law and you put it against those things, you find that there is a calling upon life that usurps anything that was asked of before. And before we end today, I'm going to show you an example of what that was like because Leviticus spells it out for us. Uh, there was a calling to live a life beyond like what anybody had lived before. And here's the interesting thing. That is, to go with today's sermon, that is a type, the law in its calling is a type that shadows forward the antitype of what it is to live the Christian life. We are no longer under the law of Moses. The law for the Christian can only do one thing, and that is condemn us of sin. It tells us where we are wrong, okay? But it can't redeem us. It can only point accusation, it can never acquit us. And that's important for us to understand. So when we talk about when somebody becomes a believer in Christ, and you might read some things through the Bible, as in um, uh, walking according to the law of Christ, uh, the law of liberty, the perfect law of liberty. If you've seen anything like that, James brings it up a few times especially. When you see those things, it is never in those situations talking about going back to the law unless the context is telling you to get back in there. For instance, if one person breaks a law, they've broken what? The whole law. So whenever James is using that in his second chapter, what he's showing there is he's showing that just like in the Old Testament, you break one law, you're completely guilty of that whole thing. So it is in the same way when you're walking with Christ. If you are not fulfilling the law of Christ by walking according to the Spirit in obedience, as he has called us to do, what you find is, is you're not in fellowship with the Father. So, so this whole idea of the law of liberty calls the Christian to a greater means of living beyond the way that everybody else is being satisfied in their worldly existence. Does that make sense? The pagans have their thing already going on. And we have enough problem fighting the pagan poison. But here's the secret to the Christian life. Until we embrace God's word and we come to grips with a convicting truth that is greater then the reality that we have settled for, thinking that the world might have the answers to certain situations, we don't change. We don't make decisions any differently. Either Christ is the truth up and above all things, or we are settling for less in the way we live, make decisions, pay bills, have friends, hang out, work, whatever it is. Does that make sense to everybody? So the law is calling the people to a greater means of living. Now, here's one thing to, to understand. The Bible never promotes this. And I've been wondering, because all my life when I was brought up in church, th this, this is the idea that I walked away from, and I can't understand why I got it, knowing what I see about the Bible now. The law was never, ever promoted 
as a way for someone to gain acceptance with God. Does that make sense? And what I mean is, is no one was saved by keeping the law. Raise your hand if you've heard, well, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Oh, well, they were saved by keeping the law. Have you heard that? Okay, I got two nods and one hand. Okay, seriously, raise your hand. Have you heard that before? Okay, so much more than what I thought. And what I found out was it's usually the backwood Baptists who are promoting that. And why is that? Because a lot of times they're tied to legalism and it's a lot easier to keep people in line if you can control how they think and what they do and what they agree to. And so they they assert well-meaning, but well-meaning wrong, assert works into the process in order to try to keep people in line. The Bible never says that people were accepted by the law as far as their relationship with God. How were people accepted? How were people saved in the Old Testament? Do we know? Belief, faith. And Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. That has never changed in all of history. Not one time. It's never changed. The law was about how an Israelite has fellowship with Yahweh, with his creator. It's not about how he gains relationship. It's not about that. So any questions before we move forward? Does that help Colleen a little bit? Understand? Okay. If you want some time, Google Suzerain Vassal Treaty. It's a good Google. It's worth a Google. Go ahead, Corey. Uh, If we, okay, it depends on how you want to define law. Here's Corey's question. Is there ever a time in the Old Testament that it talks about confession in conjunction with the law? There's two answers to that. Number one, we see such things as whenever they come to bring sacrifices, somebody would go and they put their head on the animal or the hand on the animal's head, everybody remember that? And they would, they would confess their sins at that moment, and it would be like imputing, crediting to the account of that sin of that animal. They would kill one of the goats in order to atone for the sin, and then they had another one, the scapegoat, that they would send out in the wilderness that was like carrying the sins away from the camp. And that was a picture of what Christ would later do with our sins, is not just die for them and atone for them, but completely remove them from the account Do you see how that works? So that's one way of confession. Now, why do I say it depends on how you decide or discern the word law or interpret the word law? Depending on what you look at throughout the Old and New Testament, context always determines the meaning of a word. That's so important to understand, okay? Here's why it is. Sometimes you will read law, and it's just referring to Exodus. Sometimes you read the word law, and it's just referring to the Torah, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy. Sometimes you read the word law, and it's actually referring to Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets. Sometimes it's referring to the Psalms and the Proverbs. Sometimes it's referring to the Psalms, Proverbs, and the prophets. And sometimes it's referring to all 39 books of the Old Testament. So you always have to use the surrounding context to determine the meaning. And here's the way that you figure it out. If they're quoting from the Old Testament, and they say, because it's written in the law, then that's when you get out your handy-dandy left hand and you flip over to the Old Testament and you find out where that's located at within the books of the law. Does that make sense? That's how you know where they're at. So yes, there would be situations like that, especially in the Psalms. There's a lot of times where David is advocating the confession of sin. Uh, Psalm 51 is a good one. Lord, be not far from me, Uh, created me a clean heart, that kind of thing. Uh, because of his sin with Bathsheba, he's confessing it. And he says, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. So that would be another example of that in the Old Testament. It's a good question. Chris, what'd you have? What's that? Okay. 
Well, if you think of it, let me know. So, so if you notice, look at chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. At the very beginning, you have a detailed understanding of where they are uh, across the Jordan in the wilderness, uh, in the Arabah opposite Suf and between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. And you're like, yes, my next vacation is planned. Where are we going? Uh, what you find is, is this is a valley that is actually south of the Sea of Galilee. That's what you find. It is going to be on the far east side of the Jordan River. Mitch, do we have a map? We good to bring that up? So there we go. Can we blow it up just a little bit? Probably in the middle, actually. Uh, where's my pointer? It's right here. So that's all I can find. So there you go. So in these areas right here, everybody see Jabesh Gilead up here along the Jordan River? Okay, we're going to be along in these realms here. What you're going to find is, is this is the settling of the 12 tribes, but can we scoot back out to the whole thing so we can see it real quick? Uh, if you notice, the Arabah actually runs up through this area right here. And when they come in through Moab, they're going to be conquering all of this section. And so if I recall correctly, it's 160 miles from south to north that they end up conquering. And they actually move out into this realm here to get because it is Sihon and it is Og, the key to Gabation, and they take over their territories. Now what's interesting is some scholars believe that that wasn't even part of what they were supposed to be inheriting as part of the land initially. Now, of course, we have the promise uh, in Genesis um, 17, 18 through 21, that gives the detailed geography, and we find out that it actually stretches all the way to the Euphrates. But coming in to conquer, what made this part of the land capturable, if we want to say it that way, was those pagan kings' refusal of letting Israel come in and simply pass through their land. They say, We'll give you money for water. We'll give you money for bread. We're not here to disturb you. We're not here to mess you up. And instead, they pulled out their, their swords and said, nope, ain't happening. They wanted to come through pers- uh, peacefully, and they weren't going to let it go on. So now here's the ironic thing about this book. Chapter 1, verse 2. It is 11 days journey from Horeb. Does anybody remember where Horeb? what, what Horeb is? Mount Horeb. It is Mount Sinai. Anytime that you see Horeb mentioned in your text, it's talking about the exact same place that is Mount Sinai. So that's very important to know as you're reading through. Same geographical location. So notice, it's an 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. And that journey is 140 miles. So back then, they could cover 140 miles of 2 million plus people in 11 days. Okay? So that's those people knew how to march. Forget all those 60s demonstrations. These people knew how to march, right? Pretty, pretty crazy. So verse 3. Uh, but notice what it says. In the what? What's it say? In the 40th year. Does everybody see the little quip here? It only takes 11 days to get there. But it took them how long? 40 years. Everybody see that? Notice in the 40th year. On the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the children according to all that the Lord had commanded him. They defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, uh, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Edri. Across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses took to expound the law, saying, and then here is the beginning of the historical prologue. And so from chapter 1 
verse 5, which is the introduction to this, but chapter, uh, verse 6, he starts actually speaking. All the way to chapter 4, verse 40, Moses is going to recount the recent history of the people. And here's the reason why. In Deuteronomy, he is dealing with generation number 2. Okay? Generation number 1 fell in the wilderness because of their refusal to trust the Lord when he said, go in and possess the land. Now, here's what's crazy about this, and this is one of the greatest um, objections that atheists want to try to throw at the Bible, is the fact that God actually commands the utter destruction, or it's the word that we know of as harem, okay? It's H-A-R-E-M in Hebrew, harem. You'll, you'll see it translated in your Bible as utterly destroyed or devoted to destruction, those types of things. But what it means is to go into this geographic location and absolutely wipe out these people from existence, exterminate them. Now, that sounds pretty cruel. It sounds pretty uh, uh, drastic. Well, why can't we work with these people? Well, why can't we do this and this and have social programs and whatever else and rehabilitation? And, and here's the reason why is because when you receive so much revelation, you cannot rehabilitate the human heart. If these people were able to be saved, the Lord would save them. But if he knew they were going to be persistent in their rebellion and never repent as Nineveh did, and Nineveh was an extremely cruel nation in Jonah's time, then he wipes them off the face of the map. And Jerusalem, or sorry, in, in, in the Jews, Israel, becomes God's execution tool. Make no mistake about this, guys. God uses nations, any nation he wants to, because he's God over all of it. He uses any nation that he wants to in order to discipline other nations. And in this case right here, to clear the land that they had no business being in because it was not theirs and because of their rampant paganism that was going on, he is going to cleanse this land. So here's what we're going to do. Turn over to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18. We are going to read this chapter. And I want you to note some of the things that are going on here. If you've never read Leviticus, it is a fascinating read. Leviticus chapter 18. We're going to read through the entire chapter. I want you to see what God has to say because He relates it and He connects all the pieces for why a holy, just, but also exceedingly loving God would make such a request as you are to go in and you are to kill everything that moves. Man, woman, child, cattle, tear down their altars, set it all on fire. I don't care. It's done. They're, they're done for. Kill them is the idea. Again, we don't like it. If, if, you, if you have a moral objection to it, pray about it. But hopefully this will help ease your pain when you realize uh, what's going on. Chapter 18, verse 1. And remember, like we talked about, capital L-O-R-D when they're all in caps, Yahweh. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. You shall not, now notice this, you shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived. Everybody notice that's past, right? Don't bring that past idolatry and paganism into your existence. Isn't that probably where they got their itch for idolatry to begin with by there? They worshipped everything under the sun, including the sun. So notice this, nor... Are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you? Notice, you are not to let your past affect you as a people, 
And you are not to let the things of your future affect you as a people. You are not to be drawing off of their societies, customs, any of that stuff. He says here, you shall not walk in their statutes. Verse 4, you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. This is what was to set them apart. They're not to be resemblant of Egypt, and they're not to try to ingrain themselves in the customs of Canaan. They are to be about God and God alone. God is all, in all, through all, and from where all blessings come from, period. They are to be a holy, sanctified people. It says here, verse 5, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may, what's it say? Live. If, there's the contingency, he does them, I am Yahweh. Now, now, pay attention to this. Let me talk about it for just a second before we speed read through. One is not truly living from God's perspective. And that means enjoying the, enjoying the abundance of all that your existence, both here and in the age to come, could ever possibly muster and what we cannot possibly fathom until you are walking with the Lord. The child of God born again by the Spirit, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, such a, has such an incredible privilege because with the indwelling Spirit that we receive at the moment of believing in Him, we have the capability of living a life that no one else gets to live because it is a supernatural life that is lived through us. I'm telling you, this world has enough evil and sin to go around for everybody in the boatloads. But what they do not have is people who actually care about real justice, people who are actually fighting for real truth, and people who are actually able to love the unlovable because that love does not originate in them, but through them from a God that loves them completely. Does that make sense? So when we talk about what is it to truly live, for the Christian it is to truly live in the Spirit. God is calling on Israel, walk in my statutes. That way you know what it is to truly live in the abundance of blessing that I want to pour out on you. We are not Israel, the church is something different, but the ideas of his blessing upon us are the same ideas. So it says here, and watch this, verse 6. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am Yahweh. Now, this is all talking about sexual contact and relationships within your family. It says here, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness, the nakedness of your sister. Either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. Their nakedness you shall not uncover, for their nakedness is yours. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, born to your father, she is your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt or aunt. Aunt. We say aunt in Kentucky. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. 
You shall not uncover her nakedness. Verse 16, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. You shall not, sorry, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. This is lewdness, or the word actually means this is wicked. It is, if you want to know what wickedness is, this is what it is, and it is seen in the extremes of sexual misconduct. Notice this. Notice that there are warnings against this, but notice that God is acutely aware of the depths of human depravity and the lengths to which they will go. Notice after that, verse 18, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. You shall not, and here's what's interesting is, is that kind of encapsulates some of the sexual sins within the family, or, or in the direct relation to the neighbor, which notice the closest of community that it brings up in the idea of what it was for Israel to live together. But then look at 21, it changes a little bit. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech. And which, by the way, Molech is depicted as a three-story owl, is essentially what it is. Notice that the false gods, uh, the Elohim is the idea, generic use for God, spiritual fallen demons is what they are, can only manifest themselves in created things because they cannot create anything. Does that make sense? That's why whenever you see the Sphinx in Egypt, it's totally an idol of probably something they've seen, demonically speaking, because as the body of the cat and the head of a man. All they can do, the best they can do, is take two created things and try to stick them together like they're Legos or something like that. So notice it says here, uh, you shall not offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your Elohim, I am Yahweh. In other words, you shall not sacrifice your children is what it's talking about. Child sacrifice. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. This is talking to homosexuality. It is horrible. That's what the word abomination means. God's divine assessment is it is a horrible act. Notice that it is separated from the addressing of family or neighbor sins, and it's set apart as one, and it is given the designation of abomination. Why is it that we don't agree with homosexuality? Is it because we just hate gay people? No. They're sinners just like you and I are. It's because the acts that they choose to participate in have been declared by the creator of all things to be absolutely 100% detestable in his sight as something that they were never created to do. It is a, it is a embracing and it is a flourishing of human perversion. That's what it is. Now, nobody wants that answer because that's not the politically correct answer, and you're not really loving if you say that. But here's the thing. If God is the creator of over all things, and if he alone is truth, he's telling you the truth about everything. See how that works? Okay. So watch this, verse 23. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled by it. This is bestiality. Nor have, uh, let's see here, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. It is contrary to your design. Just as two guys and two girls don't go together, neither do animals and people go together. Or the basic high noted theological premise would be the plumbing doesn't work. Okay? 
So important to understand. I know that may seem kind of crude, but think about it. Just by design, you can make these arguments. Just by design. So verse 24, now watch this. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. Why? For, there's your causal conjunction, by all these, the nations, the pagans, which I am casting out before you have become defiled. In other words, everything that he just told them not to do is everything that the pagan inhabitants of the Canaan land have been doing for years and years and years. And by committing such blatant sin, they have defiled that land. And what is the land doing? Gone, exiling them, spitting them out, done with them. Their sins affect where they live. That's the idea. The land needs to be cleansed. How do you cleanse it? You get rid of the sin. What is the sin? Those people. They are sin. And so notice what he's saying. Don't take up their lifestyle. Don't do the things they're doing. I'm sending you in to judge them because these are all the things that they've done that are meriting destruction and extinction. Verse 25, for the land, there it is, circle it, the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so that land has spewed out its inhabitants. Verse 26, but as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations, neither to the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it is spewed out the nations which has been before you. For whosoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people, exiled. You lose your privilege in the land that God had promised to Abraham. And here's the last verse. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs the horrible customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. Why is it that something so horrific as genocide was commanded by the creator of all things to wipe out a people? Because this list right here merited their destruction. And notice what he, what he shows here. The human being, especially Israel who knows God, they're not beyond doing these things, which I think is real important when we think about the idea of, well, how much can, can a Christian sin before we can determine they're not really saved? It's not our place. Our place is not to do that. So, any thoughts about this? I know we're four minutes over. I apologize. So we'll, everybody write down your questions, save them for next week, we'll address them, okay? But I want to give you guys a reason. Why is it that they're moving in and, and called to absolutely destroy these people? This is the reason. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that your word gives us truth. Thank you, God, so much that it explains itself, it interprets itself. It helps us realize the hard things of Scripture. And so I pray, God, give us clarity, hearts that are soft, acceptance as we go through Deuteronomy and begin to pick back up pace. And Father, may you refresh us by the wonderful grace and love that we see you pour out. It's in Jesus' name, amen.